I would like to begin a new series this morning on this tremendous book, this book that is called The Letter to the Galatians. Galatians is sometimes called the Magna Carta of Christianity because like the Magna Carta, it is so foundational to everything that we have, everything that we are as the people of God. And like the Magna Carta, it unfolds the liberty and the freedom that we can have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is a uh, tremendous book. We're going to read together the first few verses and just uh, get oriented to the book this morning. And I trust that it will be a blessing to us in the days to come. So, beginning in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God our Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astounded that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel Contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Christians talk a lot about the gospel. Chances are you can't come to uh, a Lord's Day service hardly without hearing the word gospel. We talk about it a lot. It's so dear and precious to all of us. It is the, the, the center around which we are all gathered. And yet, sometimes we're a little fuzzy when it comes to what the gospel actually is. And if I were to say to you, I want you to come up here and stand up here and tell us what is the gospel, you know, we would, we might stumble a little bit. Um, certainly some of that is because the gospel is so vast in its implications. It takes a whole Bible to reveal the gospel. Um, but some of it is because we just use the term sometimes without really thinking about its meaning. And we live in a world that is full of so many distortions of the gospel that sometimes, even with people who I know to be the Lord's people, when I ask them to explain to me the gospel, the answer comes out a bit muddled. This book is, I hope, going to be a real help to us in 
clarifying for every one of us what is the gospel and how to guard the gospel against the distortions of the gospel that are all around us, the misunderstandings and the perversion of the gospel. It's a, it's a tremendous word, you know, the word just simply means on an etymological level, it just means the good news. The word is found 12 times in the six chapters of Paul's letter to the Galatian churches here. And so this will be our theme, and particularly he's going to explain in the course of this letter how the gospel is related to the law. In fact, he uses the word law 26 times in the book. So we're talking about gospel, we're talking about law, and with relation to the, to the law, particularly, he ref, makes reference to the works of the law six times. So we're going to need to think about what are the works of the law and how do they relate to the gospel. And whatever else the works of the law are, circumcision probably plays a big role because the references made to circumcision or uncircumcision 16 times in the book. That might, if you're not a church person, that might seem a strange thing to get together to talk about, but it certainly was an important aspect of the Jewish law, and Paul is going to deal with that, um, and, and the relationship of these things to the gospel. He's also going to talk about how the gospel is related to faith. For that term is used 21 times throughout the, these six chapters. And all of this, of course, relates to our being justified before God. And he speaks about justification or being justified before God some eight times throughout this book. In fact, Martin Luther called justification the principle on which the church stands or falls. That it is at the very heart of the gospel. In chapter 3 and verse 11 of this letter, he's going to write, quoting the Old Testament, that the just shall live by what? The just shall live by faith. Of course, that passage, along with its counterpart in the book of Romans, it were those were the words that ignited the Protestant Reformation. Those are the words that lived in the conscience of Martin Luther. The question is, did Luther rightly understand those words? Did he rightly understand justification? And there are a lot of people, you may or may not be aware, who are questioning that today. Who are asking whether Martin Luther misunderstood. We might examine those things as we go through this book. and See how we need to understand the idea of justification by faith. Justification, friends, deals with this, this question. How is it possible for sinful, fallen man to ever be vindicated and justified and accepted by an absolutely just and holy God? That's the most important question you'll ever ask yourself. That's the most important question you'll ever address how is it possible for a holy God to justify 
to vindicate, to declare righteous, sinful men. Because you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. And when we stand at the judgment of God, every one of us better hope and pray that we will be accepted before God. This passage, this book, begins to address uh, that topic. The Gospel. The Gospel is so sweet and precious. It is good news indeed to those who understand it. But um, there are a lot of other so-called Gospels, right? Paul says in this passage, there are not really any other Gospels. There's only one real Christian message. But there are a lot of things that purport to be the Gospel. For example, there's the uh, what you might call the self-help gospel, the gospel of therapy, the gospel that says you can be a better person, you can be a good person, or the works gospel. This gospel says that being justified before God is going to depend on how good a person you are. Or the prosperity gospel which says that what's good is to be rich and never get sick. That's really what's good. That's the good news. Or the liberal gospel, which says, hey, none of the Bible's true, but be good anyway. Or the progressive gospel, which says, good, good is just what you think it is. You have your good and I have my good. Or the inclusive gospel, which basically says, you're good, I'm good, we're all good. There are all kinds of so-called gospels out there. And, And when we talk about the gospel, even people who use that terminology in the world around us are sometimes meaning something very different from what is revealed from God Himself in the Holy Scripture. And one of the greatest helps, of course, in identifying forgeries is to be very familiar with the real thing. And one of the greatest helps to being aware of the perversions of the gospel that are around us is being familiar with these passages that explain and expound for us the gospel, the true gospel of God the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go through this book, my hope and prayer is that that gospel would become more clear to us. That our, 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 our ability to articulate the gospel would be clearer, and especially that our sensitivity to perversions of the gospel would be heightened. There are uh, several important themes that are unfolded throughout the letter to the Galatian churches here uh, that I want to just sort of introduce you to this morning. Um, And the first is the importance of the gospel. Paul makes it clear that the gospel is paramount in terms of the Christian life and Christian belief system, the Christian faith. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Tell me if this is not 
a highlight of the importance of the gospel. He says, if we or an angel from heaven preaches a gospel contrary to the one that we preach, let him be what? Let him be accursed. Let that person be put out from you. Let him be under the curse of God if he comes and says that the gospel is something other than what we've preached. Again, I say, verse 9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you receive, let him be accursed. The Bible takes this very seriously. The gospel is of utmost importance. The second theme that runs through this book is the subtlety of false gospels. Some people might think, well, it's easy to see if somebody's not preaching the gospel, right? They say, they stand up and say, there is no God, Jesus Christ is not his son, and go about, live your lives however you want to live. But this is not the way that false gospels come most often. False gospels come packaged by the one whom the Bible describes as the most subtle of beings, the one who tempted even the first man and woman in the garden. And the subtlety of his temptation is seen throughout this book, particularly in this paragraph in chapter 2, verse 11. Take a look over there for a moment. Again, just want to introduce you to some of the themes here. The subtlety of false gospels, you see it in verse 11, when... Paul writing here says that when Cephas, or Peter, we know Peter, right? One of the great apostles. When Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, this is from down in Jerusalem, some men came up. Peter, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. This is people who had another gospel that Paul is going to deal with throughout this chapter. In this passage, he calls them the circumcision party. So when these people came, Peter, fearing their disapproval, separated himself from these Gentile believers. Verse 10, verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. We don't have to be concerned with all of the details of it right now, except to know this, that even a great man like Peter, like the Apostle Peter, was influenced by a false gospel for a period of time. That even great men like Barnabas, the great missionary evangelist, was by fear of disapproval or, or a desire for, in, in some worldly sense, was led astray to, to uh, compromise with a perversion of the gospel. It, listen, brothers and sisters, if that can happen to Peter, if it can happen to Barnabas, then we need to be wary lest it happen to any of us. So we see the subtlety of false gospels. Thirdly, in this book, we see the theme of the unity of the gospel. The unity of the gospel 
the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, is the same gospel that was revealed through all of the scriptures throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 7. Chapter 3, verse 7, 8 and 9. He writes, Know then, you should know this, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel. Where did he preach the gospel? He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. All those years earlier, way back in the Old Testament, preached the gospel saying this, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then if you'll turn that same chapter, chapter 3, down to the very last verse of chapter 3, he says this really profound statement. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul is going to unfold the unity of the gospel. Not that there are uh, two ways of salvation, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. That there are not two peoples of God, the Jews and then the Gentile church. The unity of the gospel is uh, is unfolded in, in, in this letter. And then fourthly, we have the theme of the centrality of Jesus Christ in the gospel. I want to remind you that the gospel is not just news. Uh, it is not just uh, a set of propositions. It is not just a way of living. You know, sometimes I'll ask people, what is the gospel? How do you understand the gospel? And they'll say, sometimes the first thing that comes to people's mind is, well, you try to live like Jesus. You try to do um, what is good. Um, what is the, the gospel? The gospel is Christ himself. The good news in, 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 the, in the narrowest sense is Jesus Christ himself given for his people. Uh, and you see in verse chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is what? Christ. The promises are focused on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the heart, the center, the the end, the goal, the whole point of the gospel, it is Christ. There, he is central in the gospel. And then finally, Paul is going to unfold in, uh, by way of a theme in this book, the spirit of the gospel. And I don't mean spirit with a small s, I mean the capital S spirit. The Holy Spirit of the gospel who leads those who are the true people of God giving them new desires that, that, and comforting them with the gospel, producing the fruit of the gospel in their lives. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. But 
he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. And he's going to contrast flesh and spirit, right? The flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So he's going to end this letter on a on a on a on a note that that highlights the ministry of the Holy Spirit in bringing the gospel into the actual experience of the life of those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the grand themes that are unfolded throughout this book, the importance of the gospel, the subtlety of false gospels, the unity of the gospel the centrality of Jesus Christ in the gospel and the spirit of the gospel who brings it to into experience in our lives. Now, if all of these things are in store for us, then, then I would say at least from the beginning, we need to keep in mind three broad implications uh, from what we're about to study. The first is that we must be vigilant against distortions of the gospel or being led away from the gospel altogether. We must be vigilant. And that's really part of the purpose of studying this letter together. This letter was given by God to help us to think rightly about the gospel and to guard us from misunderstanding understandings of the gospel, less being led astray, we would fail to come into the kingdom of God. So we must be vigilant. And part of being vigilant means coming and showing up week after week and hearing God's word, hearing it with an open mind and an open heart, grappling with what he has said and taking it home and submitting to what God has revealed to be. The way of justification. Secondly, it's going to mean that in guarding the gospel, we must be willing to be considered divisive. That in guarding the true gospel, we must be so intent on that, that we're considered by some people to be unnecessarily divisive. Remember, he said, if anybody comes preaching any other gospel, you take your stand against it. And I'll tell you, the whole world is full of uh, of accusations against people like us that we're being too narrow, that we're being too careful, that we're being too hard-nosed. Somebody says, well, can't people come to God another way? That just doesn't seem very kind of you to look at these other really good religious people and say that they're lost from God and lost for eternity. Friends, the Bible teaches us, and and, and people are going to say about us then, well, you're divisive. You're dividing people. But God himself, through this apostle, urges us to take uh, an unwavering stand about the gospel in such a way that we're even willing to be considered 
to be divisive. And ultimately, it's not, it's not people who are standing for the truth that are dividing people. It's people who are insisting on a perversion who are really dividing people away from the one true faith that God has revealed in His Word. And thirdly, by way of implication for us, and this is just really broadly, we're going to have to pay attention to the right way to think and not just how we feel about things. Another way of saying that is a lot of this book, the book of Galatians, is what we might call doctrinal. It's the kind of, uh, the kind of um, communication that you have to think about. You have to grapple with, you have to reckon with in your mind and, and believe or reject. We're going to have to pay attention to careful thinking about the gospel. So many times people come to church and just say, I just want something that just sort of gives me an emotional boost to get me through the week. And, and praise God, we want our feelings to be involved in our worship of God. But before right feelings come right thinking. And so we need to engage our minds with what God's revealed in all of this doctrinal section in order to be able to uh, recognize when false doctrine comes so that we might stand joyful in the one true gospel. Now, I want to look then, in the time that we have left, just at the introduction to this book. So if you go back to chapter 1, and just the first five verses here this morning, and what I want want you to notice is that in the introduction, Paul highlights the supernatural origin of his apostleship and of his message, that it comes from God. And that's important because if his apostleship is from God, then that validates his message, the gospel that he is preaching. In in other words, it is to say that his gospel is the gospel. It is God's gospel because his apostleship is from God himself. Now, most of us are familiar with the uh, the man who has come to be known as the Apostle Paul. Um, Paul, formerly also known as Saul in some of the historical records, he was probably 25, 30 years old around there at the time that our Lord Jesus was crucified. He was, of course, not a follower of Jesus He was a Pharisee. If you're familiar with Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, you know that's usually pretty negative. Saul was a Pharisee. He was rabbinically trained in Judaism. He was an incredibly intelligent man, very well educated. He called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, you couldn't get more Hebrew than him. You couldn't get more knowledgeable of God's law in one sense, than Saul of Tarsus. Um, and not only was he uh, not only was he knowledgeable, you know, it's one thing if you meet somebody who's got a, a big head, but he was also incredibly zealous spiritually, uh, religiously. He was, he was in earnest. 
This was not just a man who wanted to impress people with how much he knew. He was intent on trying to live out what he believed. And so zealous was he uh, that he became a persecutor of early Christians, which he viewed to be a false sect pursuing some false deity and leading people away from their true Messiah. Uh, As I say, he was incredibly zealous and yet lost. Do you understand that there are people like that all around in the world today who are religiously just in earnest? I mean, they're not hypocritical in their zeal, but yet they are lost and blind to the truth. This was Saul. And uh, shortly after Jesus' ascension into heaven, that we're actually going to talk about this afternoon, uh, the risen Lord revealed himself and confronted Saul. Uh, remember that blinding light in the middle of midday. And, and the Lord Jesus himself spoke right there on that road to that man. In his mercy and his grace, he reprimanded him and called him to follow him. And from that day on, Saul of Tarsus was a transformed man. His life was turned around completely. I mean, it was night and day. We sing, I once was blind, but now I see that was Paul, that was Saul, literally and spiritually. In every way, the blinders were taken off, his eyes were open, and he saw the Lord Jesus now as the fulfillment of everything that God had been telling His people for thousands of years. He goes on into more of his story. We'll come to it in the weeks to come here in chapter 1 and 2. But uh, he's the author. He's writing this letter now many uh, a number of years later as a follower, a committed follower of Jesus Christ, as a preacher of the gospel. Um, he's also writing, according to verse 2, along with the brothers who are with me, or they are sending their greeting, um, as it were. Uh, he's sending well wishes from the brothers, um, which may be a reference to the people that traveled with him. You remember the like Barnabas and Silas before, there were people who traveled with him on his journeys to help. Um, or perhaps it was a reference to the other believers that he was with up there in Syria, in Antioch. And I, uh, I wanted to just pause right here just to remind us, even from this introduction to the letter, that supporting every minister of the gospel is a whole host of God's people. Are we, are we aware of that? And how, what a blessing that is to a minister of the gospel. I can tell you from firsthand experience, Paul told it many times in his letters how thankful he was for the support, for the encouragement, for the prayers, for the, for the financial support, for the upholding, for the ministry in every way, uh, of the brothers and the sisters in the various churches. He names a number of them at the ends of some of his letters, doesn't he? In one case, he says, I love this woman who was like a mother to me. He said, I remember people who have been in prison with me. I was thrown into prison and they stayed there with me. People ministered to my needs, sometimes financially, again and again and again, sometimes when I was completely without anything. 
So what a blessing it is when God's people come alongside the minister of the gospel, when they partner with uh, missionaries going around the world, taking the gospel sometimes to hard places, sometimes to very discouraging places. What a, a, a blessing. Every missionary knows, every pastor knows what this is to say, it's not just me, it's the brothers who are with me. So Paul writes uh, from these people, this letter now he says to, and here's the recipients, to the churches in Galatia. Galatia was a Roman uh, imperial province of the time, mostly, well all of it was pretty much in what's today modern Turkey. You can picture that in your head. Um, in Paul's day, the, the the territory of Galatia ran kind of in the middle of Turkey from the north up in, by the Black Sea all the way down to the Mediterranean in the south. Um, there's some dispute as to exactly whom he was writing this letter to. Some people think it was to the ethnic Galatian people who lived in the northern part of that district. Um, most, Probably most uh, modern... Interpreters believe that he's writing to the churches that were in southern Galatia that he visited and established really on his first missionary journey. So he's writing a letter back to a number of these churches. It doesn't really make a whole lot of difference in the interpretation of the letter, but of course it does make a little difference when we come to the chronology of his life that he's going to uh, expound on, and we'll come back to it then. What is interesting is that he's writing to the churches. This letter was not addressed to any one church like some of the letters that we have. For example, the book of Romans, right? is written to the believers in Rome. Or some of the other letters written to specific people or specific churches. This letter, rather, was written to a number of churches all across that area who apparently were all together dealing with some of the same perversions of the gospel which should then remind us that sometimes false gospels are pretty pervasive. Sometimes you might feel like you're almost all alone in trying to articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ because the whole area around you is describing the gospel in other terms. And such was the case with these churches. It was a pretty widespread phenomenon, apparently, enough so that he has to write to all of these churches to warn them about this false gospel that was coming into their midst. He, uh, he calls himself in the introduction to this letter, Paul does, an apostle. And that is an important word. You might want to underline that or circle it or at least let it be uh, highlighted and significant for you, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle, he says, through Jesus Christ. An apostle. You probably know the root of it, it just means to be sent. Someone who's sent. Um, but it, it means more than just, you know, I'm going to send you to the store um, or even just going on a journey, uh, there, that, that's a part of it, but the, but the uh, essence of it is this, that you're going on a specific mission for me. If I send my son to the grocery store, to Kroger, down the street, I don't want him to just kind of willy-nilly wander around the store and pick up whatever he thinks looks good. 
I want him to go and get what I want him to get. He's authorized to spend money on my credit card, but only for what I want him to buy. And so an apostle is an official representative of someone else who has the right and the authority to speak on behalf of that person in their name. So as it were that the apostle is almost as if it were the person himself because he is the official representative authorized to speak on his behalf. This is an apostle. Paul calls himself an apostle. Remember that our Lord chose apostles and he says, I give, he, he gave to them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is unparalleled kind of authority. What you open will be opened and what you close will be closed. I mean, this is um, unparalleled authority that is um, in connection with an apostle of Jesus Christ. Don't ever get that confused. You know, sometimes people talk about um, someone today in our world around us as an apostle. Apostle so-and-so. Friends, don't believe it. Jesus had his apostles. Now, there are apostles in a generic sense. There were apostles of churches. So a church would send someone out as an official messenger of that church, right? But they were an apostle of the church, not an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is a unique position that was given to 12 men personally commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. One of them, of course, in the foreknowledge of God, was chosen in order, of course, to be an instrument to bring about the uh, the, the crucifixion of our Lord, Judas. But Jesus personally commissioned 12 men and then personally confronted Saul, Paul, uh, on that road to Damascus. Uh, he commissioned him to be one of his official representatives on earth. Jesus spoke out of heaven, chose Saul to stand in the gap for uh, Judas who had betrayed him, and now here is another apostle given by God, direct supernatural revelation from God. So he's going to make much in this chapter of his apostleship because his apostleship is going to be confirming of his gospel that he's preaching to the Gentiles. Now notice again in verses 1, 2, 3 here, that when he talks about his apostleship, he makes two denials and one affirmation. First of all, he denies that his apostleship has its source or its origin in any man. Right? You see that? His commission was, quote, not from men. Paul considered that his, he knew that his apostleship was not bestowed by any other human. And so his message, his gospel, did not come from and did not depend then on any human authority. And that is so important. Friends, if, if you don't get that, all right, then you don't have any definitive gospel. Because here's what happens when you preach the gospel to somebody who doesn't accept that. You say, let me tell you the gospel. And you begin to explain what the Bible reveals the gospel to be, and their answer is something like this. Well, 
that's just the opinion of Paul. That's just the opinion of Peter or James or John or, you know, those are the, that's the, those are, the Bible was written by human authority, you know, human people. They, they made the best decisions they could. They, they tried to know God. They were really spiritual people. They gave good advice, but, you know, they, they didn't know everything. There was a lot of superstition, a lot of things they didn't understand. They were men of their time. They were people that were products of their own culture, right? You ever heard people argue this way? When you try to say, this is the gospel. This is just one good man's idea about how to get to God, they will say. There are many different ideas. But listen, you cannot say that and reckon with Paul, what Paul writes here. Either he's a liar, um, or, or his message must be believed. Because he says it did not come from men. His apostleship is not from men. Secondly, he denies that his apostleship and his message came by any human agency. He says it is not through men. It's not from men and it's not through men. He was not made an apostle by some sort of apostolic succession, right? Where one apostle then confers his authority on the next guy and he confers it on the next guy and so men pass on their authority through one another through this line of uh, people and by the time you get to, you know, the guy that's 27th down the line, you wonder if it has anything to do with what started out in the beginning. His, his, his apostleship is not from men. It's not through men. It's not dependent on any human being. Rather, he makes this affirmation that it is through Jesus Christ, through the exalted and enthroned Son of Man that revealed the gospel to him. Think about this, Paul is the only apostle who was called and commissioned by the glorified, resurrected, glorified Christ. He says, my apostleship did not come through men, doesn't depend on any human origin, it comes through Jesus Christ. In other words, it is his power, it is his authority behind every word you read in the book of Galatians. Are you with me? It is the power of Jesus Christ, it is the authority of Christ that stands behind every word we read in the book of Galatians, and in fact, in all of the rest of the inspired Scripture. That's an absolutely essential point. Friends, if we ever lose that point, uh, then we've lost the foundation beneath our feet. Everything else will be up for grabs, I guarantee you. In time, and this is the way it's played out in church history, in time, when people reject the inspiration of the Bible, in time, every other, every other doctrine is up for grabs. Because you have just taken any firm foundation out from underneath you. So he makes an affirmation that it is through Jesus Christ, it is from God the Father who raised Christ from the dead, that his, his apostleship has been given to him and his message comes. Paul's gospel then is a divine gospel. It's a divine message. And you and I then are going to have to reckon with it. There are no other alternative ideas if this is God's gospel. There's only one God, right? He only, he only uh, has one gospel. And any other gospel is not from God other than Paul's gospel other than the gospel that is preached from the beginning to the end of the Scripture. 
And his message then is non-negotiable. If it's from God, if it's not of human origin, then it's non-negotiable. In other words, we can't take the gospel and soften the hard parts of it. You know what I mean? Because there are parts of the gospel that seem hard to us, that seem hard for us to accept, hard for us to embrace, hard even in some ways to understand, to, to reconcile with experience or what we, what we seem to feel, right? But if, this, if Paul's gospel, if, if what Paul wrote in this book of Galatians is from God, that means we can't tweak it. We can't dismiss parts of it. We can't adjust it to our own thinking and our own liking. Now, all of that brings us then to the greeting that he gives to the Galatian churches in verse number 3. And I want you to, we're going we're gonna to end here because in this greeting is a, a really a succinct statement of Paul's gospel. So if you want to know what is Paul's gospel, here I think he reveals it. He sort of tips his hand. Even before he begins to expound it in this letter, he tips his hand even in the way he greets this church. Here's what he says. Verse 3, grace to you. What's the first word out of his mouth? Grace. Amen? Grace to you and peace. The gospel is rooted in grace. Yeah. Grace. What is grace? Well, that's something we have to talk about too, isn't it? Grace is the favor of God. Grace is the kindness of God which implies then, and it's explicitly stated in many places, that it is unmerited, it's undeserved, it's unearned, it's given as a a favor, a, a, a kindness, a gift. That's the language that the Bible uses. It is grace. What is the gospel? It begins with this, pure grace. No merit, no desert, but God's grace kindness to undeserving people. And that grace then creates peace with God. Grace to you and peace. Because we were born enemies of God. We were at enmity with God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Right? Isn't that what the Scripture says? And yet, He says that through the gospel, you can be at peace with God. Grace and peace. And what is the origin of this grace and peace? He says, notice again verse 3, it is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say this, friends. Grace comes from the commitment between the Father and the Son. Grace flows to us out of this relationship that father and son have with each other and the commitment that they make to each other from all eternity to provide salvation, to to bring a people into communion with them. It has no source in us. It has its source in God alone. This is the gospel. The gospel is an outflow of this Godhead. And how is this grace shown to us in Christ? It says that He gave Himself, notice the language here, look very closely at it. 
He gave himself for our sins. So what is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ died, but not just that his life was taken away from him, not just that he was killed and murdered, is that he laid his life down. He intentionally and voluntarily laid down his life for his sheep as an act of love for them, as an act of obedience to his father. Remember that that pact that father and son made in eternity past to provide salvation and bring a people into communion with God. That act of laying down his life was the son's obedience to that and submission to that uh, pact, that relationship that the father had with the son. And this death, he says, was, quote, for our sins. And the word for here, this is, this is important. It, it implies that it was on our behalf. That it was in our place. That the death, the nature of that death was that it was substitutionary. That Christ died instead of you dying. Christ was judged and condemned by a holy God instead of you and I being judged and condemned by a holy God. Christ gave himself for our sins in our place, on our behalf. And to what end has he done this? He unfolds it further. To deliver us from the present evil age. He's done it to deliver us. To deliver us from this world of sin and death. The goal of our salvation is eschatological. That is, it has to do with our ultimate end. And what is the ultimate end for God's people? To be brought into a new age, to be delivered out of this present evil age, and to be brought into a new age, into a new creation, free from sin and the curse and where ultimately even those things will be eliminated from our experience altogether. The gospel has this as its end, to deliver us from this present evil age. And all of this happens, he says in the end of the verse, according to the will of our God and Father. This happens according to God's will. And so to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel comes at God's sovereign prerogative. And because of that, to Him alone is all the glory. The gospel doesn't come to us. It doesn't doesn't become real for us. It's not true for us because we invented a system to work our way to God or we, we sort of we're good enough to, to, to meet him halfway or to take the first step. It is God and his will that stands behind all of this gospel and only him that gets all of the glory. This is Paul's gospel in a nutshell. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is Paul's gospel.
And it is God's gospel. Because it was not received of men, but it came from God Himself. It is good news. Good news indeed for all who will receive it. So believe it. This is my admonition to you this morning. Believe the gospel. Put your hope in the gospel and in the person of the gospel, which is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Listen, friend, you either have Jesus Christ or you don't have Him. You're either in Christ or you're not. Which is it for you? How long will you go apart from Christ? I admonish you to come to Christ with faith, to believe in the Gospel, to embrace it as true and as the only way for you to be justified in the sight of a holy and righteous God. God has made a way through the substitutionary death of His Son. Believe it. And secondly, guard it. Guard the Gospel from all of the subtle distortions that are out there so that you would not be led astray. Guard your heart and mind by immersing yourself as we meet together week after week, immersing yourself in the true Gospel of God. Defend the Gospel. Defend the Gospel. You know, we are going to call out from time to time the false Gospels of this world. And that's right, and that's good. Not out of hatred for any person, but out of love for God and of the, for the Gospel as He's revealed it. And out of love for all of those who are led astray by false Gospels. We need to defend the Gospel and proclaim the Gospel. Proclaim the Gospel with boldness because it is not of human origin. It is not some person's idea. Some guy didn't come up with it in AD 300. Somebody didn't formulate it back around the time of Jesus. It wasn't invented in 1000 BC. The Gospel is as old as God's plan for the world. and The Gospel is not of human origin, and so we can proclaim it. It is universally to be proclaimed. And finally, glory in it. Glory in the Gospel. This is the way Paul ends this letter, by the way. In chapter 6 and verse 14, he closes with these words, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Heavenly Father, thank You for this Word today. We thank You for this letter. We pray that You would open our hearts and minds to it. We pray that You would make the Gospel clear to us and free us from any distortions of the Gospel that are yet clinging to our consciousness. I pray that this letter would give us clarity. I pray even now today that You would grant illumination to those who sit here in the service this morning that the light would come on for them, that they would know that they need Christ, that they would understand and embrace the good news. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.